Welcome to Life, L-I-F-E, Luxury in Full Effect. I'm David Frangioni. I'm here with Justin Lee. And this is the show where we interview the people operating at the top of the luxury market. From entertainment, real estate, celebrity industries, and everything in between. Together, we'll hear their life stories and how they got to where they are today. Welcome, everybody, to Life with David and Justin. And that's L-I-F-E for Luxury in Full Effect. David, our guest today, I'm really excited about because you guys know each other and you know a lot of his backstory and I'm getting to know it right now, but he's got such a colorful, cool Brooklyn music background, which is, I I can't wait to dive into it. So tell me a little bit about Billy from your perspective. Well, yeah, he's had a very interesting life. Like many of us, you know, just went for his dreams as early as he could by following his passion, you know, taking a a real like full on approach to it and turned out to have a really interesting, cool life. And he's a great guy. I've known him for what feels like a lifetime. And I'm still finding out cool new things about him. He's just a, you know, he's just a really, really cool guy that has lived a really interesting and really impactful life. Like everything he's done He's done really well, and he's made a difference in a lot of other people's lives, and um, he's wonderful. Yeah, no, he's great. I mean, we all had dinner together, and he's just such a sweet guy, and it was great to get to know him. And and just, uh, how did you guys meet? Uh, We met in New York in the 80s, and then reconnected really years later just through having so many mutual friends (laughs) and so many mutual experiences. It was just one of those things that's like almost inevitable. You know, I mean, both of us being drummers, being studio rats, being electronic guys, just having being Italian. I mean, there's so many things we have in common that was like a brotherhood, really. Justin, he's kind of you on the East Coast with a Brooklyn accent. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) He's the Italian version of you, Justin. In some ways, he is. Well, didn't you get that? Because you spend time with him. You know, you you kind of have this way, David, where because you're so great, I'm gonna blow smoke up your butt. But um, you you're so great that you just pull in like such great like minded people, and it's it's so nice that like for people that will bring onto the show and the ones that we know, they're just all good people and have a really good. They have interesting stories, and and through it all, they're just the core of it is, is I think we're just nice. I mean, he was his wife was so sweet. He was so such a nice guy. And that was the first time that I met him, just you know, a few weeks ago. But uh, yeah, no, I do feel like that. I mean, we have we all have our parallels, stories, how the way our lives in a totally different way. I mean, me, me being out here in Beverly Hills, and you guys being on the East Coast and stuff, and it's. It's, I mean, you know, my life like better than anybody else. And it's, it's so interesting to see sort of how we were all, it all ended up and, you know, sort of the same came into the same place, you know? Well, you've had an extraordinary life to say the least. And, um, uh, I got to talk to our producer, but someday I, I want to find out if I can host you on our show, <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm going to host you back, <laughs> but, but Billy Amendola is, uh, you know, yeah, he's a great guy. And, and now a lot of people know him, you know, from Modern Drummer, of course, 
which is going to be a significant portion of of one of the uh, the segments that we have with him. But you know, his whole story of origin and growing up in a musical family and staying true to his roots in Brooklyn and raising a family that also became much like his, you know, his roots of having a musical family with his son now and. You know, it's really, it's, it's great. It's really great. Very, you know, there's a lot to, to learn from Billy and a lot to, uh, and there's a, and there's a segment of it that's very entertaining as well. Yeah, that's great. No, I can't wait to do that. All right, well, cool. So that's going to be, um, this is going to be a fun one with uh, Billy. I'm looking forward to it. Yes, it is. Billy Amendola. I love the sound of that. Maybe it's because I'm Italian. It's just the, the sound Amendola. of Amendola. Just great, got a great rhythm to it. All right, so stay tuned for life, luxury, and full effect. Billy Amendola, welcome, my brother. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. We call this part one because there's so much to cover. So we're going to kind of start at the beginning. You know, let's let's share with the the listeners, you know, a little bit about your life and, you know, growing up in a musical family and get us started. Okay. Well, uh, going back to the beginning, my dad played trombone in in the big band when he was in the Navy. So he was very into music. So both my parents were very supportive when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, like so many people of my generation and decided that "Mm, that looks like a pretty cool job. And that looks like something that I'd like to do forever. I kind of took an interest. And then I went through a phase where after seeing that, I wanted to be every Beatle at one time, but then the drums kind of just just got me. For some reason, there was a band when I was around 10 years old that used to practice around the corner from me, and I used to beg my mom to walk around that way and, so I could stop by the front of the house and just listen, and then eventually they invited me in, and that was the first time I, I think I sat behind a set of drums, and then the, my buddy, who lived across the street from me at the time, my buddy Neil, he had a set of drums and he was selling them, but my parents wouldn't get them for me yet because my dad wanted me to go for drum lessons and wanted to make sure, I guess, that, that I was serious. It just evolved from that. I, I did start to take lessons, you know, learning on a pad back in the day. That's how you learned. You learn on a little practice pad. And, and it wasn't a drum teacher. It was a music teacher. So I really wanted to play on drums. And then eventually, little by little, with their support, my parents' support, you know, I got, I did get a set of drums and I started taking real lessons. And from there, kind of just went on to start playing. That was the beginning part, you know, and then playing along to records like we all did. You know, Hal Blaine, of course, was 20 of my favorite drummers, as everyone says, because those were the records, you know, 60s and 70s that I was playing along to growing up. And then that was it. You know, that was the beginning of uh, me playing the drums. How old were you when you like were really in full effect playing uh, the drums after the lessons and everything? 12 years old, I, I put a band together. And then um, actually uh, at 14, I went on the road. So at that point, I was always the youngest of the crew. There was a bunch of guys in the neighborhood, Mikey Riddle and and some of the popular musicians that were in the neighborhood. I used to do the same thing force myself into let, letting them hang out with me and watching them practice and rehearse and try to sit in as much as I could. I wind up hooking up with their lead singer at the time who was leaving and uh, Frank DiGuscenzo. And um, that's when me and him started this band called Uncle Sam. And then from Uncle Sam, we got a couple of different guys 
in the band revolving door kind of thing until we got a couple of the other guys. We got uh, Jimmy Braffitt and then John Kaz, and then we changed the band to Gypsy. And then from Gypsy, we got Jimmy Mayer into the band, and uh, we changed the name of the band in 1976 to Mantis. What is your process for writing a song? Like, what are you, you know, as the drummer, you know, when the guitarist or, you know, someone on piano, what is your favorite way to contribute to writing a song and how, what is your process? My my main thing is the hook, the chorus. I'll, I'll come up most of the time with the chorus and then I'll I'll need the words besides the melody. I'll, I'll need words as well to convey my idea. And then once I have the, the hook, to me, that's, uh, you know, 90% of the song. Are you writing the music and the lyrics? I write the lyric first, and then I'll write the feel of it. And then once I get that, then I'm able to write most of the times bass lines, or I drive Jimmy crazy and just make him, I try to convey to him what chords I'm trying to hear in my head, or I'll play something similar that I want the feel to be, and he'll hit a certain chord until I hear it in my head. Being that I don't play multiple, multiple instruments, that's the way that I always do it. But my main thing is mostly, I mean, I write lyrics uh, for verses, but my main thing is getting the chorus and the hook. And then once we have the chorus and the hook, everything else basically gets written around, the storyline gets written around that. But the chorus and the hook for you is a combination of coming up with a lyric that's the hook as well as the melody of the hook. Exactly. And then I just, sing, you know, I sing that into a tape recorder so I don't forget it. And then I'll put, with my mouth, I'll put a bass line to it. You know, if I'm coming up with a line, hey, David, I love you today, you know, I'll go boom, 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 boom. Hey, David, I love you today. Boom, 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 You know, and then Kaz will just copy that bass line and, of course, he'll refine it. And then we'll figure out what key it's going to be sung in because Frankie's got to sing it. And then... Sometimes everybody jumps in, they have a line, I have another line to a verse, another line. I mean, that's basically how we write. We, we pretty much write together. Sometimes one of us will have a majority of the song, but most of the time we, when we do something as Mantis, it's usually the four of us pretty much locked in a room. And because we've done it for so long, we can pretty much finish each other's sentences at this point. Wow. And what is your, and, and even before the process, when you're going into doing a new song, do you go in with an inspiration? Like what's usually your starting point? Is it, would it start off and be, you know, a lyric, a concept, uh, a melody, you know, what would be sort of like your, like, okay, we're starting a new song today. Where, where are we going to go with this? Well, it's always different. Most of the time it'll start with something that I sang into a tape recorder with the actual words and the chorus Mm -hmm. pretty much. 80% 80% there. Mm-hmm. Um, when Jimmy comes down with a song, of, of course, you know, he has the chords already because he's a guitar player, he's a keyboard player, so he can have the chords. And then we might say, oh, you know, instead of saying it that way, why don't you try saying it this way? Well, why don't you slow it down? Let's try this tempo instead of that tempo, or, you know, so, something to that effect. And then the drums, of course, to me, the drums is the foundation of the building. You know, once the drums are down and you have the feel, then you kind of know which way the song is going to go. I mean, let's face it, there's only so many beats, there's only so many chords. Once you have the drums down, people don't realize that's why a lot of great producers start as their drummers. They start as drummers and they seem to be go on to become great pro- producers. I, I guess it's a sense of rhythm. 
they're listening to the song, you know, yeah, they're just, they're always sitting there listening to the guys writing the songs. So they're learning and they kind of know how a song's got to go. It's not, it's not rocket science. And I don't believe in these classes that people tell you, oh, you can learn how to write songs. You don't learn how to write songs. You get better at writing songs, but you got to know how to write a song. For sure. It's so interesting to hear everybody's process of writing a song because there's so many different versions of it that you hear, but, you know, everyone ends up at the same place, you know? Right. Well, you know, you're, you're a songwriter, so you know. Yeah, no, no, exactly. So it's such, it's so, you know, like my process was totally different. You know, it's so interesting and everybody's is. I mean, it's 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 great to hear um, and fascinating to hear how everybody gets, we're all getting to the same place at the end of the day, right? Right. And sometimes things, sometimes, I mean, to me, the best songs and any, any songwriter will tell you this, the best songs kind of just come out. I mean, some of the songs that we did for, for, for the album, uh, for the new album, it just fell into place. I mean, we just started to play with a basic idea. And then 15 minutes later, the song was pretty much not even changed. It was like, that was the song. It just, it just something flowed through all of us and we were all on the same page and it just worked. And then sometimes, you know, we beat a song to death. It just doesn't work. And then we just get too close to it. Somebody else has to come in and say, yeah, you know, that song's not that great. You're spending too much time on it, you know? Yeah. For sure. So take us then through. So the songwriting starts. You guys are learning about writing songs and, and without whether you're realizing it or not, defining your style, transitioning from rock, funk to, you know, eventually it sounds like disco. But let's get to the rock funk time. So what time frame is this? So now so now it's 1977. And we're playing CBGBs with Blondie and the Ramones and television and all all of those bands. Which is was big stuff. Oh, it was major. You know, we were playing rock. And we were a little bit heavier than all those bands. Those bands were a little bit more punkier. We were still a little bit more into Queen and Uriah Heep was a big influence. And uh, John Rockwell was at one of those shows. And the New York he's a New York Times critic. The next day when he was talking about that festival that they had at CBGB's in 77, um, he said Mantis is one of the best rock bands to come around in a long time not sure they belong in this setting. So in a way it kind of made us, because we knew we didn't sound like any of those bands and some of them we liked, some of them we didn't, but we, you know, we were in that, that's where we were going. And then about a year later, not even a year later, we were still playing around the city and we were playing at all the places, popular places at the time. And we were at Trudy Heller's, which I don't even think is there anymore in the city. And it was like one o'clock in the morning and there was nobody in the club. You know what it's like. You start fooling around. So we're all on stage and we remember that night pretty well because um, at one point we had bought new shirts to all wear because we all wore the same clothes to like, you know, look like a band or whatever. And Jimmy still had the tag on his shirt. And we, we didn't realize till after we finished playing that night that Jimmy still had the tags on his shirt, never took the tags off. But anyway, long story short, we're in this club and we're playing and there's nobody there. And it's one o'clock in the morning and we're kind of like tired and we're kind of like, this sucks. This is a waste of time. And, and we, so we start going into like brick house for about a half hour and start funking it up and start playing our funk stuff. And then we finished and we actually got yelled at for doing that from the club owner at the time. And uh, he gave us the thing like, well, you never know who's who's there. We were like, there was nobody here. What's the difference? We were still playing music, you know. 
And he was like, well, you never know who's there. And then he walks away. And then as he walks away, this gentleman approaches us and he says, you know, I really like the funk stuff that you guys were doing. And, and he, he was African-American. We're five white guys from Brooklyn with really long hair and looking like, you know, a typical rock band. And he said, uh, I have a small independent label. Do you think you guys could come into the studio and, and write a disco song? So we all looked at each other like laughing and like it was a joke. And we were like, yeah, of course. And then a week later, we met with him and he had like a small independent label. And he had one record out that was actually out and being played on the dance station. So we were like, oh, this guy might know what he's doing. And he was hooked up with a, with a female manager that they shared an office with. I guess the plan was that she was going to manage us and he was going to put us in the studio. But what had happened was, tragically, she got hit by a bus not too long after we missed her. Yeah, and she became crippled. And things just work out the way they work out. Nobody knows why things happen. But she put us in suits and she had us playing the Hiltons and we were playing the Playboy clubs and we were playing those kind of like gigs. But that's not really where we wanted to go. But disco was getting popular and that's where all the disco stuff was being played. So we did that for a while. We started to write some disco songs and then he took us into the studio and we did one song called Turnaround Boogie Down. Actually, Ray Chu played, he was playing with Diana Ross at the time. He came in to arrange it and play keyboards on that. So as a producer, he did hire great musicians for us, additional musicians. So we went in thinking what, what we thought was a disco song. We did this one song. And it came out in Canada and it made very little noise, but it made him enough money, I guess, for him to take an interest and a little noise to come back to us and say, let's do another song. And then she got tragically into that accident and she disappeared from the scene and she never recovered from that. Actually, a year later, she passed away. So oh now God. he was our manager. We signed papers. You know, we did the typical thing that any band would do, you know. We were popular in Canada, so we were doing a new record. We were going to the studio. We signed papers. We didn't realize that we were paying for everything that we were doing. You know, and in those days, you know, studios cost $300 an hour. We would be in the studio for months recording and doing what we thought was disco. But we always still had that heavy edge. So we stood out from the regular light, fluffy disco records and bands that were already out and most weren't bands most were just studio projects with singers so we were a full band and long story short we did that ne next record and it became a huge hit stayed on on the major new york radio station for eight weeks at number two and then it did really well everywhere including then, canada you were still big there and then we were huge in canada we went there when that record came out and, and it hit number one in canada we went there to do TV shows. We did like, you know, their version of American Bandstand. So things started to happen. And then we did the album. And then we had another hit off the album, um, Rocket to the Top. That was the second hit. And then we got a little bigger and bigger with the DJ. So we went from playing CBGBs now to playing Studio 54 and the Fun House and John Jelly being Benitez. He came in the studio and it was the first time he was ever in the studio and the first time he ever mixed a record was our first record, Dancer Freestyle. So everything just kind of evolved from there. So all of a sudden now, we're these five white guys from Brooklyn and we have these two huge disco hits out and we're showing up to gigs and everybody thought that we were a black band. Nobody believed that, that we were white punks from Brooklyn. 
it was like pretty funny when we would show up at places. Sometimes Don Cornelius, we played in Harlem at this big club. I forget the name of the club. And he introduced us. And as we were walking out, you could see the, I wish I had it on film. You could see the expression on his face. Like who the hell are these guys? And then we would show up for radio <laughs> interviews. And this is obviously before MTV and YouTube, right? Oh, way before. Yeah. Way, way before all of that. We would we would show up at radio stations and do live interviews on air. And as we would walk in, the guy, we could tell how stunned everybody was because they wouldn't let us put our picture on the cover because we were so huge in those markets. They said that if they they wouldn't hang up, you know, there was still a little prejudice going on, which we never believed in. And we didn't even think of that. But they had told us that if they put our picture on the cover, then we wouldn't in those markets. The radio stations wouldn't play us. As a matter of fact, Frankie Crocker did pull us when he found out that we were white. That kind of slapped us in the face because we realized, wow, this is, world is a little backwards still because we never really experienced that. We weren't prejudiced at all. And, you know, we love so, so much R&B music that we never thought of that. But when Frankie Crocker pulled the record at one point, we were like, wow, are you kidding me? But you know, he had to come around later on and he had to play it because it became a huge dance hit. So now let's let's capture this for a second. So you got the record out. It's on New York radio, which as Justin and I well know is, you know, huge, huge milestones. Obviously it's, it's a hit. Things are cooking. Things are going great in Canada, which, you know, you could have a career just in Canada if you were big enough, even without the States, if things are really being done right. And all these great things are happening. So what happened basically with Mantis at this point? Now you're now you've reached the next step. And obviously after this, you can be a warm-up band for an arena act or play even bigger clubs, you know, keep with that ascension that bands, especially at that time, took going through the ranks. What happens with Mantis here? Well, what happened was we were mismanaged and I guess it was nobody it was everybody's fault. I mean, because he wasn't supposed to be our manager. So I guess we were mismanaged and we were young and naive. Well, but but mismanaged or unmanaged? Because if you have the wrong manager, if you have a guy that's not really a manager, but he's managing, then, you know, it's kind of everybody's fault for putting, you know, the wrong guy in the in the wrong role or maybe the right guy, but in the wrong role. Or in hindsight, what was the big takeaway from that? Uh, the big takeaway from that was that we really needed somebody on our side who was going to, who knew how to be a manager and then guide us and protect us and get us the right deals. Because what had happened was then when those records started taking off, we had a number one record in Italy. So we went over to Europe to do a whole bunch of TV shows. And, you know, again, we didn't realize that we were paying for all this. You know, no, I was only 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. I, you know, we, none of us knew anything about the business. We had songs on the radio. We were on TV everywhere. So we just figured like, wow, there's money coming in. Is there, but where's the money? There's no money coming in. And then we realized, oh, you, you know, you guys are paying for all this. Yeah, we're flying around. We're, we're flying with first class. We're, we're living, you know, we're living the life. And we almost crossed over at one point on our third single. But disco was starting to get a bit. That's when the whole disco sucks movement came in. So we kind of like missed the, that opportunity to cross over because we always wanted to change and be a pop band. We didn't want to keep writing disco songs because disco songs were only played in the clubs and played on the dance station. So when we had the third single, Boogie to the Bop, that one was starting to be played and it was almost ready to cross over. 
but we didn't realize that he was making deals without us knowing. We were signed to Atlantic in Europe. We didn't even know we were on Atlantic Records. Then we found out later on that he sold our catalog to a company that put out all that old stuff. We didn't even know anything about that. And then I had called the company and I, you know, we had lawyers call or whatever, but to this day, they're still ripping us off. You know what it's like to be in litigation is going back and forth with lawyers and everything. I don't think there's enough money there to warrant paying a lawyer his fee to, to find out what's going on. There could be, we really don't know because we never really knew how many records we sold, but we, we saw that we were all over the charts and everything. So I think we learned our lesson from that point on, but then we also saw that it was happening to every single band in the world. And it has been happening in record companies. That's why they're out of business these days because they've been ripping off people in, from way back in the 50s. That taught us a little bit about, well, this is a music business. Maybe we should be paying attention to the business. After that all happened, the whole disco scene came back. We were frustrated and we said, okay, we're not, we're leaving this guy. We're leaving this label. The contract's over. We're, we're doing our own thing. We're going back to playing rock. And but then what happened with that was. If, if I understand this correctly, you have your manager and your record label head are the same person. Exactly. Yeah. So that's really the, that's where the rub really occurs because in mo you know, back nowadays, it's a little different because you don't need all the time a big label. And when you do need a big label, it becomes much more partner driven than it was then. But right. at, in the seventies and eighties, a manager and a label were on different sides of the table. Exactly. So he was really looking out for himself. You know, he, he gave, he, he put his name on as a uh, songwriter. He, he, he did not write one thing in this, in any of the songs. And collected royalties um, from that too, as, as. Yeah. He collected royalties from that. I mean, we still get, like, I just got a sound exchange. We all just got a sound exchange check because, you know, studio 54 series still plays it. And some, you know, a lot of the dance stations still play the song, you know, the checks are not big, but, you know, the songs are 40 years old. If it was managed right and it was done right, you know, it, it probably would have been would have been different. You know, live and learn, as they say. You know, that's 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 how we lived and learned. And so from that period, um, then you started to write for other artists and work with other artists and and. Well, at the time we did, he had a couple of other people on his label that we wrote songs for. There was this guy Kenny B. Great, great, great R&B singer. He had records out, like, I think in the 60s. And then he was signed to the label. We wrote we wrote a song for him. We we wrote a song for a couple other people that were on the label. But nothing was as big as, as the stuff that we had. The stuff that you had. Um, but then you went on to work with some other big artists, too, didn't you? Didn't you? You worked with Debbie Gibbs? Well, what had happened was after, once, like, 1981, 82 came back, we went back to playing rock. And then we didn't want to change the name of the band. So we went back to playing all the clubs that we did play. We went back to playing CBGBs. You know, um, we went back to playing all the clubs and we were back to playing rock. And what had happened was we were confusing people because people were coming to see us play thinking that we were going to play the dance stuff. And we didn't, didn't even acknowledge that stuff. And so people didn't even realize that it was the same band. The people that did realize it was the same band wanted to hear the disco songs. We didn't want to do the disco songs. So we did two complete demos of brand new pop, pop songs, pop rock. And we did the whole scene and we played for another two years. And then we all kind of like 
typical band stuff. Where who wants to do this? Who wants to do that? Who's getting older? Who's got to start making more money? Who, who's getting married? Who's, who's having a family? You know, it's like things start to like move into like, okay, now we're becoming adults. Yes. Well, what, what, what's going to happen? We never officially like broke up. Everybody started to do their own little thing. And I happened to be involved with the other four guys' projects, whatever they did. I play drums on, or we co-wrote together. And, and, and I basically, you know, we all stayed friends and we all did things for each other and recommended each other. And then that's when I started doing around 84 is when I started doing studio work. You know, early 80s, I got electronic drums and then I started doing tons of studio work. And that's how me and David actually met on the Debbie Gibson record when I did uh, Only In My Dreams and Shake Your Love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how was that like compared to going into that world from where you were at before for years since you were, you know, basically 19 years old and working in the studio? Was there like a real, did you feel the difference in times and the way people worked and how things sort of unfolded? Uh, No. In those days, people were still kind of working the same way. And because I had that experience of being in the studio, I guess that's why I I knew how to be a studio musician. I knew how to make a record. I knew how to play on records. I knew how to act in the studio with producers and being hired and, you know, giving them what they wanted. I learned pretty early on when you're a studio musician that sometimes, again, what we were talking about with songwriting, somebody could come in and have a piece of a song and then the studio musicians will start adding their parts and pretty much writing the song for the person and you don't get any credit. No credit, exactly. So I learned pretty quick about that. So I would just do my job. A lot of times, though, the people that I were working for were pretty established and they were they were major people. So they, I was basically playing what they were telling me to play as a studio musician, which was my job. And then I did that for a good number of years. And because I was into electronics and I had a set of Simmons and I was into programming drums, I got a lot of work and I didn't have to audition because I had records out already. So I, you know, I was working with the same people. Everybody has their team that they called producers at the time who were hot. You know, I was doing jingles and and a couple of movie things and and records, you know, and for every 10 records, maybe two would, you know, get on the radio and and make a little bit of noise. But it was a job. And then I did that for maybe five years. And then that's when the business started to change. That's when studios started to change. They weren't, there was no budgets anymore. Nobody was hiring people to do things. You know, everybody thought that they could program a drum machine everybody could hold a button down and get a loop going. It was like, so things, that's when things completely changed. And then at that point, um, I had my, my son, Maddie. And then at that point I didn't want to tour anymore. And I was in my thirties and I had felt that I had did all of the touring and everything. I wasn't going to do that anymore. I stayed home and, you know, I did sessions. And, and then when I turned 40, well, I started, before then, I would freelance for Modern Drummer. I was the artist liaison for, we used to do a thing every year, an annual uh, drum festival, the Modern Drummer Festival, which was a huge... Wait, before we get into the festival, I have a question. When you're doing the sessions at the beginning of your career, you're doing straight ahead acoustic drum sessions. They need a drummer on a track, you go in and you do it, right? Well, I was doing both. Acoustic on some stuff, if it was rock stuff, on the most of the stuff was still 
even though they, disco had got a bad name, dance music never really went away. To this day, it never really went away. It's, this, you know, electronic music is the biggest thing there is still. So I did a lot of electronic work. I went in and made the drum machine. Either I programmed the drum machine and played on top of it, or I had to go in and play on top of the drum machine and make it sound like it was real drums. Sometimes I would go in and just play hi-hat and cymbals and a couple of fills. You know, sometimes I would just play hi-hat to, to make the drum machine move a little now, bit. Now, did you have your own setup for electronics or were you using other people's at this time? No, I had, I had my, my complete setup. I had a Lynn drum machine and I had a DMX drum machine and I had the Simmons. I had a full Simmons kit. I was using my own. I had Syn, I had syndromes. I mean, that's that's like a that's a rig. I mean, that's like a Rolls Royce rig. Absolutely, and that, and, and and that's also what got me work because I had I had what I needed. Well, you had the best of the best, and you knew how to use it, and you were musical and a great drummer. So that combination was rare at that time, especially right. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy Braylauer was the king of that he got the most work and he, he was, he was the king of that. He was, you know, I, I learned from, from Jimmy actually, you know, and we kind of came up around the, the same time, but he was a little bit older than me and he was a little bit ahead of me already. So if Jimmy wasn't working on a record for the dance, he wasn't doing as much dance stuff. He was doing more of the big name stuff where I was doing a lot of the 12 inch dance remixes because I was, that's where my genre, that's where I was known. You know, that's where, that's where I shown playing Simmons drums, Tom rolls on, on all that stuff. And because Mantis, I use syndromes on the Mantis stuff and it became a popular part of our sound. Everybody wanted me to do that sound on their records. So I would just show my syndromes and they would say piss all over this track. And, you know, I would just, pretty much play a drum solo on some things with the Simmons or with the syndromes. You got to love the elegance of how producers uh, describe how, what they want done to a music track in the studio. Right, Justin? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty classic. So you've got, you've got all these electronics. So you've basically invested a lot into this rig. I mean, this is, this is the luxury electronic drum set. Yep. And did you did you think twice about it? I mean, I know Mantis, I'm sure, made money and was successful, but you're always kind of second guessing anybody is like, okay, you know, how much do I put back into this, and what makes sense? Because electronics were the price of a car back then. Exactly. No, I was a typical musician. I, I didn't even think about where the money was going to come from. But the way that I did, you know, I gave lessons at the time. You know, I was giving lessons. What I did do at at, at the time. If I wasn't playing my Simmons, I rented them out because I was one of the first guys to have them here in the States. I rented them out to, you know, to the studios and to people. And then I would just be there to basically tell the drummer, I wouldn't hit the drums that hard if I were you, because back in the day, it was like hitting a Formica table. So I think that's why to this day, my back and my, I have back and neck, neck problems besides carrying <laughs> drums. You know, I think from playing Simmons, you know, you couldn't lay into them the same way that you would lay into your drum set. So these guys would come in and there was a couple of big name drummers. I'm not going to say who, but they would come in and, you know, and I would say, okay, here's your setup. Here's the sounds. You want this sound. You want that sound. I basically would turn the knob for them and they would lay into the drums and then I could see their wrist. They would complain that their wrist would hurt. And I would be like, yeah, you can't, you got, there's a certain way to use those drums. So you kind of had to learn how to use them, but to answer your question, I mean, I, 
I didn't think about the money or I didn't like every musician. You just got to, you want the next thing, you know, you just, the next piece of gear, you know, you got, you got to have it. And you need that of course, to keep on the cutting edge and, and if you don't have it. Somebody else is going to have it. And that's, who's going to get the call. So I really didn't think about it. And for you, for us, you know, for me that doesn't know the cost of all these stuff, you and David are like the aficionados, but for the people that don't know, what does, you know, a, a rig like that cost? How does it compare to? Well, I, I think back then, I think the Simmons was like six, $7,000, which, mm-hmm. you know, in the 80s is equivalent to 20 now. Yeah. I mean, you know, Roland, Roland has a beautiful set that, that I got my eye on now that's close to seven grand, you know, electronic kit. That's how me and Dave met on, on the sessions. And then Dave really got into, you know, MIDI and like, I really, he was a forerunner and all that stuff. And yep, those were the days, man. That's where it all started for me is going, you know, in my case, going from a drummer to not and not planning to go into the technology world and the MIDI world. You know, you and I overlapped for a second before we met. We didn't know we were overlapping where I was a drummer that wanted to learn electronics and integrate it and implement it into my palette of, you know, sounds. And it was really hard in the mid eighties, especially starting then to play acoustic drums without any kind of electronic supplement and get the sound, you know, whether you were triggering or using a drum machine, or even if you were just triggering kick and snare, or you had a couple of pads next to your setup, like if you had nothing and you were just an acoustic drummer, in the popular music world, that was becoming almost impossible to compete with. And that's what got me into it originally. And then I ended up falling in love with it and realizing that I loved it as much or more than playing. And that's where all the MIDI stuff that you're referring to really started, that I just immersed myself into it and never stopped, even to this day, learning about it and um, you know, just understanding enough about it or as much about it as I can so I can apply it to uh, projects and to music and to studios and, you know, whatever. So now what happens is you've got this rig, you're doing your studio stuff. Music is just, you know, we're flying through the eighties and modern drummer magazine has you doing what at these festivals and like bring us into yeah, that. Time well, frame. well, because I was in the business for so long, since I was 14 over the years, I, I met so many musicians and you know, we opened for a lot of musicians. So I, I would hang with a lot of musicians. So I was friends with a lot of musicians. I, I was just this past weekend, I was with Jack Douglas, the producer, you know, we were reminiscing and I was talking back from those days in the seventies, you know, Shelly Yakis, who was the main engineer up at the record plant. I used to play hooky and kids, if you're listening, don't play hooky, go to school. But my school to me was, you know, I would go into the city and I'd hang out in front of the record plant at 15 years old and wait to see if I saw somebody and then friend them and talk to them. And then little by little, Shelly took me like under his wing and he used to say to me, go sit in the corner and don't say a word. You say a word, you're out of here. I used to do that. And I used to watch him make records with Rick Derringer and Dan Hartman and, and Peter Frampton. And I always was looking for John Lennon, but who I did meet later on, but never, I can never was there when, when, when John was there, but I knew that John was always at the record plant, but I watched a lot of records be, be made. So I sat in the corner and I was quiet and that I guess started the spark of my love for being in the studio. And at this time, 
you're basically networking and getting to know people in the industry and genuinely showing a true passion for music and the music making process at 14, 15 years old. With Justin, that's like, it's a parallel life to how we, we grew up as well, because we started really early and were exposed to all of these different environments and a lot of stars and a lot of really interesting people who were doing big things. It definitely changes your trajectory of, you know, of how you see things and seeing things from such, you know, such a young age right there. It gives you, it kind of puts you into the place where you know where you're going or you know where you want to go from a very young age when other kids are sort of just like all figuring it out. It's, it's, it's kind of a blessing in a way. Well, yeah. And you know, and the best thing is it's, you're doing it without even realizing what's going on. My, when I was doing that, I wasn't even thinking about it. Like there was nobody that I was in, I wasn't starstruck. So there was nobody that I was in awe of that I just wanted to meet because they were a star. I wanted to play with those people. I wanted to learn from those people. I thought like, yeah, I belong hanging out with these people. You know, I, I was stupid enough or crazy enough to think, yeah, I should be hanging out with these people. I'm just as good as these people. I probably wasn't anywhere near what these people capable of doing with what these singers, songwriters were doing. But I felt like someday I could do that. I will do that. You, you know, well, and you were courageous, right? Whether you realized it or not. I mean, there's a lot of courage that it takes to just go in that environment. You know, the famous saying by Wayne Dyer, jump in the net will appear. Right. I mean, that's basically what you were doing. Yeah. And, and I, you know, my mom was very personable. You know, she would talk to everybody. So I, I, I guess the way I was brought up, I wasn't afraid to talk to people or approach people to this day. I love everybody. You know, everybody to me is the same. Nobody's better than anybody. You know, if somebody has an ego, you know, I find out the hard way. And then I just... I, I get pissed and then I just avoid that person. Thankfully, I've come across people that took me under their wing and gave me a break and saw that I was being true and and honest. And I guess I had stars in my eyes. And I, that wasn't, you know, meet, meeting somebody was not, not a big thing. You know, when I met John Lennon, I wanted to give him my demo tape thinking, how naive am I? I'm going to give my demo tape to John Lennon. And it was a heavy metal thing that Mantis was doing at the time. There's no way that John Lennon is going to like that. When I think back now, he would think, well, what, what, what am I going to do with this? It's like, this is so far removed. He wouldn't even know that I was influenced by the Beatles for that project. But it didn't matter to me who it was. To me, it was just another person that did what I wanted to do. And I met Steve Ferroni at 14 years old. I know Steve Ferroni since I'm 14 years old. And I watched Average White Band make records up at Atlantic. Wow. And you were, and all this time based in Brooklyn, everything was sort of like in a stone's throw from where you were, basically. Yeah. Well, the funny, I'll tell you a funny kind of story. Like, you know, I lived on 48th Street in Brooklyn and 48th Street, of course, in Manhattan was music row. I mean, so I used to live in Manny's and Sam Ash and, you know, if I wasn't in the studios, I was playing hooky and, and going to the city all the time. So my mom would say, where are you? And I'd say, I'm on 48th Street. And she would always think that I was in the schoolyard across the street from my house or somewhere at a friend's house on the block. And I really wasn't lying. I was on 48th Street. Oh, my God. Amazing. See, it works. Works your advantage. And let me let me let me do a little bit of a segue because I definitely want um, to talk about this, too, because of, you know, growing up in Brooklyn and, you know, Stone's Throw from uh, Manhattan and stuff. How is how's the area changed and how has that been beneficial to you in terms of owning in Brooklyn and what it was then and what it is now? Like, how does that whole how do you feel about all that? And what's your take on it? Well, I mean, I, I was I was 
I was always proud that I came from Brooklyn. You know, some people would look in other places. Some people were fascinated by it. You know, they were like, if you were from Brooklyn, it was like, you know, that was a cool thing. Some people looked down on it. You know, being Italian from Brooklyn, everybody just thought that, you know, my whole family were mobsters. And that that's just a stereotypical thing. But to this day, I'm, I, I still live in Brooklyn. You know, I, I've seen it change. But now Brooklyn is like, at one time, Brooklyn was cool. Then it became uncool. Now you can't touch the real estate or afford to live in Brooklyn because now it's like cool and hip again. Yeah. Always, it, came, it came back. Right. And how, how much has it gone up? I mean, from back since you're a lifelong Brooklyn person, you've watched the market change multiple times and probably take some huge, huge leaps. I mean, I've seen Brooklyn real estate go from like in my neighborhood now, I don't want to say exactly where I am, but in my neighborhood now, I've seen houses go from $40,000 to a million dollars. Unbelievable. At one time they couldn't give they couldn't give the buildings away that had stores underneath them and then two or three apartments on top. 20 years ago they were practically giving those away and then all of a sudden my area became Chinatown and the Chinese people moved in and they really brought the neighborhood back to life. And now it's you can't touch those buildings for less than a million dollars. And you think about 20 years isn't that long a period of time to see an investment like that. No, I know. If I would have been, if I would have been more into business, you see, because I'm, I'm. If you had not been a musician. <laughs> yeah, had I not been a musician, right? I might have had a little bit more money to take the chance and invest in some of those. Like I could have bought three of those, and now forget it. It's like. <laughs> Unbelievable. It went into it went into other places, but you've created, you know, you've created stuff that people, you know, will still listening to 40 years later, you know, I have no regrets. And I and I always feel like I've, I've been blessed in life. And I try to give back as much as I possibly, you know, as much as I could. I have no regrets. I definitely have no regrets in, in pretty much anything and everything I've done. Amazing. And your son is in music, too. Yeah, my son, fortunately and unfortunately, is, is into music. And uh, thank God he, he he does pretty well. He learned the business. He learned the business as much as he learned his instruments, and he plays every single instrument. So he's wow. multi-talented. And you can't tell what his main instrument is anymore. And he writes great songs, and he knows the business. You know, he learned the business because of all my mistakes. Of course. He definitely learned from my mistakes, which is a good thing. And uh, how does that know, make you feel? I mean, how does that, what is that, how does that resonate with you that, you know, everything that you did and who you are and it's, it's, you know, your son is an extension of that, which I think is the coolest thing ever, because I don't know if my son is going to be going in the same direction that I did with a bunch of stuff. So I think it's like the coolest thing to sort of, in a way, have like the 2.0 version, mini me of what you did. Well, it's, it's, it's bittersweet. It's good and it's bad, you know, because at times I'm dad. And then at times we're working on something together. You know, he produced that Mantis album, the new one. If we're working together, it's it's a little bit different because I'm still dad, but I'm really not dad. So there's a balance that has to be, you know, met. But I'm proud of him. I mean, I'm I'm glad. I'm happy that he's doing what he loves because he does really love it. He didn't do it because he was forced into it. He just, when he was little, I, used to, I, I felt bad at times. I used to go in his room and say, okay, enough with the drums, enough. Me and his mom are trying to watch TV and he's in there blasting away music, playing along. And I was like, and he was still too young to go down to the basement because he was too young. He was afraid to go down the basement. He wanted his drums up here in his room, which was only a couple of uh, down the hallway from us. 
And I remember going in there it's at one called point. Payback, my friend. Yeah, I know, I know. And I remember going in there. I, I, go, I remember going into his room, opening his door, and he's like, I'm like, enough with the drums. That's it. Yeah, you, you, you've been playing the drums for like an hour. Enough with the drums. That's it. And I closed the door. I walked out. And I was like, oh, my God, what did I just do? Me, out of all people, telling my son not to play drums right now, like out of, you know, yeah. where you come from. I mean, unbelievable. And listen, what? how would you? How would you have felt if at you know that young age of like 14 years old, your son was hanging out in studios and stuff? I mean, it's a different time now, but it's pretty progressive what you did at the time and, and very ballsy. And how would you feel? I want to jump yeah. in for a second before he answers yeah. that, Justin, because that could be more profoundly on point if, if, you, if you tried. I had the exact same kind of upbringing. And for me, it was clubs first and then into the studio. And when I think back and I talk to any parent and, you know, cause now all my friends are at the age of, of parents. Right. So, and they're like, you were in a nightclub at 11 years old <laughs> and 12 and 13 and 14. And it's just like mind boggling. But back then, and I, and it wasn't that long ago, but it was a lot safer. It wasn't safe. I still think my parents were so generous and supportive that it was borderline crazy, but I'm grateful for that craziness and that love. Billy, what was it like for you? Because I, I think back and I can't believe it. I mean, I know Justin wouldn't let us done in any of the places that I played if they had a million dollars on the table. And believe me, I was, you know, I was lucky to get a glass of water. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, when I was, when I was young and playing those places, sometimes I would have, they would only let me go in to play and then, I, and then I couldn't stay because I was underage. They wouldn't let me stay. So I was in the clubs at a very, very young age. You know, I was experiencing adult things at a very, very young age. Same, and not realizing. And not realizing it, of course. So I was growing up a little too fast, maybe. But it also teaches you, you know, and coming from the streets of Brooklyn, you know, there's a certain mentality and attitude of Brooklyn, which you get street smart very, very fast. Everything kind of helped. I, I didn't realize at the time what was going on. I didn't realize exactly what was happening, but I guess it molded and it shaped me. Now, the same thing with Maddie. I used to take Maddie to the studio with me from the time he was five years old and on. And he would always be in the studio with me. You know, I had a studio in my house, so he used to like to stay up at night. He never cried. He was a great baby, but he just didn't require any sleep. So I would have him in the studio with me at all hours of the night and he would hang out. You know, he got used to that environment. And then I would take him to Lamore, which was a very, very popular big rock club back in the day. And he'd be like, seven or eight years old and two o'clock in the morning i've have i'd have him sitting on a speaker on the side of the stage watching a band play wow it's very interesting i mean you look at would he be here today if he didn't go through all that i mean it's not in the same way, the same way. Yeah. absolutely i mean you think about and, and maddie is uh is so talented. Billy is, he loves his son and he said amazing things about him, but I'll tell you as not being Maddie's father, uh, that he is an extraordinary talent, multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, producer, incredible, really. So it's been it the, the upbringing and the exposure to music and instruments and musicians and the lifestyle and the live music and the studio and all this whole combination that was uniquely his upbringing with Billy and Chris 
has turned him into a very unique and extremely talented artist. It definitely paid off, but what a way to get there. Yeah, but but you know what? It also has his pitfalls with me being his dad because he has growing up he had a lot to live up to because people would hear his name and the first thing they would say to him oh you related to billy after a while you know he's trying to make his own name for himself and then you know he would get a little frustrated at times because in a way it was good but in a way it also made it a lot harder for him of course because you know that's just the way it was and you know his mom always said to him well you know your father came first so you're gonna have to learn how to live with that you're gonna have to learn how to accept that but you know when you're a kid you're not thinking oh well my father's opening these doors for me and i i opened doors for him but as we all know if you don't have the talent then you don't have what it takes to stay behind that door you're not going to stay behind that door so yes i was able to get him opportunities that maybe he might not have had if if i wasn't his dad but it also as much as it probably helped him, it probably hurt him in a lot of ways. Oh, listen, I know. I mean, I always say, A, cream rises to the top. That's number one. And number two, sometimes when you do have a big name behind you, I mean, I'm familiar with that concept myself. You sometimes have to work two times harder to prove yourself. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's definitely not as easy as people think it is. But regardless, you right. have to have the talent first and foremost. And that's it. And, and if you don't, it doesn't matter what the name is. Right. And unfortunately, the way the business is these days, it's really, really hard for this generation. Oh, yeah. I feel bad for his generation. You know, the generation after him is really going to have it hard if things don't start to change. And no one really has any answers. You know, everybody always says, oh, what's your advice on the music? You know, there really are no answers because it's the way of the world. You know, it's like music became free. Whoever thought that one day, you know, music would be free. Yeah. Crazy. Then food should be free. You know I mean? Because there's people starving in the world. So why shouldn't food be free? I'm not saying every, you got to eat gourmet food, but if you're poor and you can't, and you're starving, there's countries that are still starving. That's absurd to me that that still goes on, that people starve and food should be free. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, listen, it's what they had to do is, is you're right. I mean, there is, you know, it's not a complete fix what the music business did, but now you know that the music is sort of a vehicle that you give away as advertisement for all the other things that you can create as being, you know, musician and artist or whatever it is, it's going to the tours, it's merchandise, it's endorsement, all the other things, all the other low hanging fruit. And basically the music they're giving it away now is, is, you know, which, which is terrible. It's like giving a card. Yeah. It's like giving you card. To exactly. But all the work, like a very expensive, painstaking, labor-loving experience. It has completely, completely changed. And it's so interesting to see sort of how, you know, the road that you have to take now as an artist and all the different things that you have to do. And it's really hard for the people as well that are not a pop star who has all these other avenues stick when you're like a real musician and you're super talented, you got to find the avenues that, you know, can make you money. Right. And everybody has to find, you know, everybody has to find their niche. They have to find out what they're actually, you know, good at and, and then just concentrate on, on that. You know, it's, it's hard to, to, to be everything to everybody. It's just, that's, it's just impossible. You know, you have to hone in on what, your main thing is and what you're good at and what you know your your best qualities are and concentrate on that and then just do you know do that yeah and you absolutely. have to, and you know and as as being creative as we all know and being artists and, and being creative 
you know, you, you, you do it for free because you love it. I mean, that's just, you know, that's, you, you, you do it. But as you said, it, it costs money to do. It's like, yeah, yeah if, if you can make a, if you can make records and, and, and it doesn't cost you a penny, uh, then that, that's, that's great. Yeah. Give it away. But where's, you know, it, it, that's, that's not how it works. Yeah, so, of course. you know, and, and you're pouring your heart and soul into, into what you're doing because you're so passionate about it. I mean, yes, of course, you know, you could, you know, if somebody came to me tomorrow and said, I need a song that sounds like this. Can you bang it out? I mean, if the four of us got into a room, we probably could bang out three versions of what, what somebody needs. That's manufacturing a song. Does that make the song great? sometimes but not really yeah it's, it's if you happen to have captured lightning in a bottle that day then great right exactly exactly but you know true music and, and that that's all you know that all comes from your heart it's a lot of blood sweat and tears yeah no for sure well billy we are going to um wrap up part one and um it was so great talking to you. And we can't wait to, um, to dive into, uh, to part two with everybody. And um, this was really awesome. I think we have a thousand more questions that we could ask you and um, hopefully we'll get through everything. And your story is really incredible and so inspiring and interesting. And, and it gets even more interesting in part two when we get into modern drummer and all of these other uh, experiences that Billy's had and, and the things that he's created and the things that he's done in the industry that uh, it's going to be really great. But thank you so much for being here today, Billy, with us. Uh, it's absolutely, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. Head on over to luxuryandfulleffect.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover more content. Until next time.